We're going to turn now to uh, John chapter 5. We're picking up in, in verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. I, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding you, for you do not believe the one he has sent, whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to turn each of our minds, each of our individual hearts to the person of Jesus, your own son, who you sent to us, that we would hear him. Give us ears to hear him now and, uh, and give us hearts to receive him by faith. We ask in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, today we are looking at a fascinating uh, section of teaching from our Lord, uh, which is a continuation from last week. If you're here the last two weeks, you'll know that John chapter 5 begins with a, a story about Jesus healing a man who's an invalid on the Sabbath day. And some of the uh, church leaders came and uh, complained to Jesus, why are you healing, why are you working on the Sabbath day? We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus' answer is, well, you know, God works every day. You know, who's going to hold the universe together on Saturday? Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. I mean, somebody's got to hold the universe together. God's doing that on the Sabbath day, so that's why I'm working. And, you know, they were kind of shocked by the statement, as they should have been, because Jesus was basically saying, I can work on the Sabbath because I'm God. And in this passage, he addresses the question then, why should we believe that? 
Why should we believe him that he is God? And that might be a question that you have here this morning. Maybe you're visiting with us today. You say, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I'm asking that question. Why should I believe in Jesus? And, uh, or maybe you are a Christian and you're here and you say, you know, I, this question is being stirred up for me. Why do I believe this? Why do I go to church? Why do I say that I'm a Christian? And uh, in order to answer that question, I think we first have to think about how do we come to believe in anything? You know, if we're going to say, why should I believe in Jesus? Well, how do we believe in anything? And because, you know, it's very common in the modern era for people to say things like, well, the reason, you know, I believe in things that have been rationally proven to me. You know, I believe in science. I believe in reason. And if it can be rationally shown to me, then I will believe it. But the fact is that the majority of the things that we believe in, we don't believe in be- simply because of reason we've rationed through them. You know, for example, most of us in this room probably believe Antarctica exists. And probably no one in this room has been to Antarctica. Why do you believe it exists? Well, there are trusted witnesses, scientists who've been there, and we believe them, and we trust them, and we think it's perfectly reasonable to believe in Antarctica because of their testimony. The vast majority of things we believe, we believe because of the testimony of trusted witnesses. And this is actually especially true of the things that are probably most, we hold most deeply. You know, we learn them from parents who we trusted, or we learned them from teachers that we trusted. And, well, ten times in this passage I just read to you, uh, Jesus uses the words witness or testimony. And he says that we come to believe in him the same way that we come to believe in most things we believe in the world. And so this morning, as we answer the question, why should I believe in Jesus? Jesus himself gives us four trustworthy witnesses that he says, you should listen to these witnesses and then you will believe in me. And the four trustworthy witnesses are are these, the Holy Spirit, godly people, that God brings into our life, the works of Jesus, the things that Jesus has done, you know, in the world. And lastly, the fourth is the Bible itself. God's given us four trustworthy witnesses, and each of these play a crucial role in how we come to believe and to trust in Jesus. So this morning, why should we believe in Jesus? Well, four things, and the first is this, because first, the Holy Spirit is a trustworthy witness. Okay, the Holy Spirit is a trustworthy witness. Four witnesses, the first is the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting uh, that Jesus begins this passage saying in verse 31, if you look at verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, this is pretty amazing that Jesus, the Son of God, says to us, don't believe me just because I said so. I mean, the Son of God telling us should be enough, but, he's, but he goes on to say in verse, in verse 32, he says, there is... Another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, if you just read that verse and that was the only verse you read, you probably wouldn't know that that verse was talking about the Holy Spirit. But, uh, you know, uh, when it talks about another whose testimony is true. But later in the Gospel of John, Jesus has this whole discourse on the Holy Spirit. And he uses these exact same words in John chapter 14. This is what he says. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And it's this spirit of truth, he says, is a witness. In, in chapter 15, the next chapter, this is what Jesus says, 1526, says, But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, what Jesus is saying is that you and I cannot come to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, unless the Holy Spirit does a supernatural you might say, communication with our souls, almost at a, like a subconscious, like soul pre-conscious level, which is, you know, pretty different than how most people think we come to believe in, uh, in things. You know, that we say, you know, matter, modern people say, I want something rationally proven to me. They never think that, you know, something has to happen to me at a, a deep spiritual level. But I'll tell you, even into my Christian life, I thought the way that many modern people think. You know, I was a, a mathematician before I became a pastor. And for my time as a mathematician, I approached the Bible as something that, you know, needs to be proven. And I would find proof text and I'd dissect it and I would create these airtight arguments to say, you know, it doesn't matter who I talk to, I can prove to them that Jesus is true. Now, I talked to a lot of people about Jesus in my life, how many people do you think decided to trust in Jesus because I had an airtight argument? <laughs> Literally zero. Literally. It's zero. Why is that? It's because faith is more about a personal trust than it is about, you know, kind of a cerebral reasoning. And trust doesn't happen at so much at a cerebral level. It happens at a gut, intuitive level. Actually, many people, even in our culture, say they, they're, what they believe in spiritually is what resonates with them. It's about what feels right. It needs to sit well with us. And actually, it's been shown overwhelmingly that people largely live their lives based on what they believe in at a gut, visceral level. And uh, there's a, a guy named Jonathan uh, Haidt who's a... a professor, a social psychologist at New York University, he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And he talks about this, how he says, in the analogy he uses, he says, you know, our emotional kind of gut commitments that are kind of pre-conscious, you know, from way down within us is kind of like an elephant. And our reason is like a rider on the elephant. And sometimes the rider on the elephant can train the elephant to go in certain directions. And your reason can kind of train your emotions to go in certain directions. But, he says, if that elephant, your emotions, wants to go in another direction than the rider wants it to, it doesn't matter how hard that rider is hitting that elephant, it's going to go that way. It's true with us as well. You know, the Bible says that God has to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. The Bible says that by nature we suppress the truth. And as long as we are suppressing the truth, it doesn't matter what kind of airtight arguments are coming into our mind. We are not going to believe in Jesus. Our elephant is taking us somewhere else. And that's why he says we need the Holy Spirit. If my deep gut commitment is God cannot be trusted, it doesn't matter what arguments you bring to me. If I believe way down in my soul God cannot be trusted, I will not trust him. I will not believe in him. And my reason then will be used more like a lawyer to prove what my elephant is saying is the truth. And so that's how the human person works. Believing in Jesus is a massive change in a person's life. 
And it requires a profound level of trust. And the only way that trust happens is if the person has been affected, transformed on a deep, spiritual, intuitive level. And what Jesus is saying here, that work that happens way down is not done by an argument. It's done by the Spirit of God himself who speaks to our hearts, speaks to our souls. Okay? So Jesus first says, okay, you won't believe in me just because I told you. But God has sent his spirit to speak deeply into people's hearts, souls, emotions, their intuitions. But you might hear that and say, okay, so the Holy Spirit is kind of anti-intellectual, anti-reason. And that's not true because actually what you'll find is that one of the primary ways that we experience the Holy Spirit working in our lives and transforming us is through really thoughtful, open conversations with people who know Jesus and love him. It's actually, much of it is an intellectual enterprise. And that leads to the second answer to the question, why should we believe in Jesus? Well, first, because the Holy Spirit is a trustworthy witness. Second, godly people that God brings into our lives are tr trustworthy witnesses. And Jesus goes on to say in uh, verse 33, he says, you sent to John, that was John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. What Jesus says, first of all, God does not need man to be his witness and speak for him. But nonetheless, John the Baptist, he was a prophet. He was a godly man. He was a light. And, uh, and Jesus says, you should have listened to what John the Baptist had to say about me. Now, you might say, okay, well, John the Baptist lived 2,000 years ago. I'm not sure what help John the Baptist is to me now in 2019 in Whatcom County. Um, but, you know, that image of a, a burning and shining light, Jesus picks up in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says about all his disciples, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Exact same, he says, if you're my disciple, you're a shining and burning lamp. And uh, Jesus says that the way that people come to know God is by people who are lights to them. You know, especially when we're in a time of darkness. We're not sure where we're going. We're not sure what's happening in our life. There are people whose lives are beautiful and shining because they have the love of Jesus in them. And they come as a light into our dark lives. And it's just like, you know, you trust a doctor with decisions about your, you know, your body and, and medicine because the doctor has expertise and experience in that area. You trust a scientist who's been to Antarctica because he has expertise in that area. And... In the same way, people who've walked with Jesus, who know the truth of who he is, who's, who's had their lives transformed, transformed by him, godly people are trustworthy witnesses to us about the truth of who Jesus is. We need them in our lives. And I love how Jesus says what it was like to be around John the Baptist. I, I don't know if you know this is what it was like to be around John the Baptist at the end of verse 35. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He said, he brought you joy to be around him because he knew God. You are receiving trustworthy knowledge about the truth of the universe when you are being around people who are shining and burning lights. Trustworthy knowledge. 
And, you know, I remember uh, several years ago I went to a, a conference down in California uh, where the speaker was a guy named Dallas Willard who, who this was his last conference, and then he passed away a few months after that. And he, uh, he was a, the chair of the philosophy department at USC, wrote a lot of philosophy, brilliant man. He also wrote Christian books about, you know, Christian spiritual formation. And at one point in the conference, someone asked him, you know, okay, you're a philosopher, you're really smart. What do you think about all these atheists who are coming out and they're writing books about how Christianity is crazy? You know, Richard Dawkins and, uh, you know, they're really putting an attack on Christianity. You're a philosopher. What do you have to say about that? And you'd think that he would interact with all these questions about philosophy and evolution and ethics. And what Dallas Willard said was, just listen to Richard Dawkins for five minutes and you will know that he does not have the truth about how to be human. He doesn't have the truth about being human. Listen to Jesus for five minutes and you will know he does have the truth about how to be human. Dallas Willard, the philosopher, is saying how a person lives their life is a reasonable answer to the question, why should I believe in Jesus? That's perfectly reasonable. It's probably the mo- one of the most important witnesses we have. Now, most cultures do not think that way. Actually, we're in a culture that is increasingly not thinking that way, that we, we listen to people because of the virtue of their character, the transformation that's happened in their life. And uh, Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders, the Pharisees, who were, you know, he saw them as a pretty conceited kind of group of religious people. And if you skip down to verse 42, this is what he says about, about how they think. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What Jesus is saying is there's this whole cultural phenomenon where everyone is in competition with each other, trying to get glory for themselves, trying to make names for themselves. And he's saying human cultures don't care about the virtues of knowing God and about love and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's why people don't care about John the Baptist or about people like Dallas Willard. But Jesus does have the power to change people. And he not only has the power to change individuals, Jesus also has the power to transform cultures. And uh, which is also a compelling witness for why we should believe in him. And so that's why he says, okay, we need the Holy Spirit as a trustworthy witness. We need godly people in our lives who are a trustworthy witness. But a third witness we need is that Jesus' works are a trustworthy witness. Jesus' works are a trustworthy witness. And Jesus says we should not just believe his words, but we should look at the things that he does. You see that there in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is saying, actions speak louder than words. And my actions are going to be louder than my words. Now, what were Jesus' works? Well, you know, we've read in the Gospel of John about some of his miracles. You know, he turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 people with a little bread and fish. He, you know, healed this man that was an invalid. Um, And all of these things are signs that are pointing to his identity. And then there's the great miracle, of course, at the end of the Gospel where Jesus dies on the cross. And he's raised from the dead. So these are his works. And you might say, well, you know, okay, I know those are written in the Bible. 
I'm not sure there are a lot of help to me. I can't watch those. I couldn't see him turn the water into wine. And is that, how's that going to help me believe? Well, you know, Jesus says later in the Gospel of John to his disciples, the people that would follow him, this is what he says, John 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Which means Jesus' works in the world aren't simply the miracles that he did in the Gospels, but it is all of the cultural transformation that has been the fruit of Jesus' love and discipleship of people for the last 2,000 years. And uh, one of the important answers uh, to this question, why should I believe in Jesus, is how has Jesus changed the world throughout history? Which I think is actually a really important thing for all of us to think about because I know I grew up Learning in school, I wasn't a Christian, I didn't go to church. And what I learned about the church in school was, you know, the church is a, you know, a, um, a power-hungry, money-hungry, manipulative institution that throughout history has kept people trapped in ignorance and superstition uh, and didn't let people think for themselves. That's what the church was. And, you know, of course, some of that is true of church history. Jesus himself says, people are going to come in my name and do wicked things. So the Bible says that that's going to happen. We should have expected it. But that narrative has to be paired with a, the profound cultural transformation that has been the fruit of the gospel. And so when you ask the question, how has Jesus changed the world? It's hard to know even where to start. I mean, you take, for example, it, historians say that it was Christians who basically invented the idea of the poor. You know, we all feel this, oh yeah, you're supposed to care for the poor. And that the poor have dignity and they have worth and they should be built up and they should be supported. People did not think that way before Jesus. Jesus invented that idea. Or, you know, hospitals. Christians, invent, because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus' body, they would bring in the sick into monasteries. And uh, I'll read to you uh, about in the 4th century, uh, Basil of Caesarea built a massive complex. And this is what the historian Robert Louis Wilkin, this is the way he describes it. He says, Basil was familiar with the healthcare system that had arisen among the monastic communities. But when he became a bishop, he undertook a more ambitious project to build a freestanding institution that would care for the sick as well as the needy. The new foundation, located on the outskirts of Caesarea, was a large complex that included medical facilities for the sick, staffed with nurses and physicians, living space for the elderly and and infirm, a hostel for travelers, a hospice for lepers who had been driven from the city because of disfigurement, a church and a monastery. So numerous were the buildings that it was called a new city. This is an invention by the followers of Jesus in the 4th century. It was Christians who invented the idea of consent in sexual relationships. That's a big thing in our culture right now, that both people should give consent if they're going to engage in, in sexual acts. You know, I've just been reading St. Augustine in the 5th century in the city of God. In the beginning of the city of God, he has a whole section where he's talking about people who, in, in, when, during the fall of the Roman Empire, Christians who were, who were raped, they were sexually abused. He talks about God's love and care for them. And it was Christians who said, people need to give consent to each other. And by the way, the way that they give consent is they say, I do. I do is how we give consent, that my body is yours. 
It was Christians in the Carolingian age of the 9th century Europe, and then in the Reformation in the 16th century that championed universal literacy and the educating of the masses. I mean, to say that Christians wanted to keep people in ignorance and superstition is crazy. Christians have championed education. It was Christians in the late medieval period who invented the research university. You know, the University of Paris and Cambridge and Oxford who said, you know what, we're not just studying the traditions of the past. The kingdom of God is coming in the future. There are infinite things for us to learn about God and about his world, and we should study them and research them and learn about them. Christians wanted to learn. Luke Ferry, the French atheist philosopher, said that even to this day, societies that have not at some point in history been transformed by the gospel still do not understand basic human rights. They, they cannot even adopt democracy uh, you know, that, that each individual person has dignity and worth and their life should be protected. He's saying the way a society learns that is through Jesus Christ and through the gospel. Christians abolished slavery in Western Europe in the ninth century, and then it rose its head again in the New World, and they abolished it again in the, uh, in, in the 18th and 19th century. It was the representative government of Puritan Presbyterian churches like ours that, uh, that get laid the foundation for representative government that we enjoy in the United States. And you just take the list of all these things. Hospitals, schools, democratic government, care for the elderly and the poor and the sick, universities, justice, human rights, protection from sexual abuse. We take all these things for granted. Trace each one of them back through history, and they all will lead you to one place. The person of Jesus Christ. That is is powerful. And there is no one remotely close who has had such cultural impact for good on human civilization as Jesus Christ. And when you combine that with the fact, just take all the people who've lived exemplary lives in any culture in the history of the world, list them all out, who have poured them, sacrificially poured themselves out and had been brilliant in caring for others. The whole list, there is only one person on that list who claimed to be God. And it's the person who's at the top of the list who had the most impact. So you have the person who's had the most cultural change is the only person who has said, I am God, come to visit this world. Jesus' works are a trustworthy witness to that he is who he said he is. And so why should we believe in Jesus? We are surrounded by a multitude of witnesses, the Holy Spirit speaking in our hearts, Godly people who come into our lives, they're like these burning lights that come into our dark lives and bring beauty. And then Jesus' kingdom has been the most important agent for change in the history of the world. Those three alone are powerful witnesses. I think enough to like say, all right, Lord, I, I'm yours. But Jesus insists on one more essential answer to that question. That also the Bible is a trustworthy witness also. Jesus says, you should believe me because God the Father has spoken about me in the scriptures, and you should believe him. Who is a more trustworthy witness than God himself? And you see that in verse 37 where he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, I know you've never heard God's voice, but his words are written down for you in the Bible. 
And he thinks, it, Jesus Christ thinks it's perfectly logical to believe in him because the Bible says so. That is a reasonable, intelligent thing to do. And some of you might say, you know, it'd be a lot easier if, if God spoke. You know, I could hear an audible voice. Instead of it kind of written down in this old book, like, why doesn't God just out of the cloud, I am the Lord, Jesus is my son. And then we'd hear it and we believe in it. Why doesn't he do that? A couple attempts to answer that. Okay, first answer is maybe audible noise goes away. Audible noise goes away. Let's say God did speak to you audibly. Uh, you know, how much would he say? I mean, he's got quite a lot to say. Let's say he only did like an hour worth of talking. Then you probably would forget some of it. And you, pretty soon you'd be like, could you say that again? Like, I, so I, I, I missed some of it. I need to hear it again. And what a written word is, is taking audible noise and making it permanent. Because God says, I know you're not going to just need to hear this once. You're going to need to hear it over and over and over again. You're going to need to study it. You're going to need to discuss it and talk about it. So I've given you a printed word so that it can be distributed to people. It can be translated into different languages. That's what God wants to do. So first, audible noise goes away. So that's why he's given us a written word. But I'd also say that your desire for an audible voice is not totally wrong. There's a certain power in hearing an audible voice. Um, sound isn't just printed on a piece of paper. Sound fills the air around us. Sound has a presence. It has an energy to it. And so it, sound affects us in a way that reading does not. And so the second thing I'd say is that actually God does speak to us through an audible voice. Could I be so bold to say that God is speaking to you right now through an audible voice? Through me. God wants you to hear his word. He wants you to hear him audibly because you know what a book can do? A book can be nicely put on a shelf and, oh yeah, I got a Bible and it sits right up there, but I don't never open it. I, it's easy to ignore. You come in this room though Sound fills the room. You're not going to get away from it. And unless you plug your ears or, or go to the bathroom or something like that, you're, that sound is going to find its way into your ears and into your brain and into your soul. It comes after us. That's one of the things that sound does. It has the very presence of God. And this is some of God's brilliance that God has chosen not to speak audibly through a thundercloud, but he's chosen poor old sinners like you and me for his audible word to come to us. There is a brilliance and charm and just love and kindness and gentleness in that that we should love about the Lord. And, you know, as I was preparing the sermon, I realized that all the witnesses in this passage, the four witnesses, are all present here in this room. You know, when you come here, the Holy Spirit is here. Each one of you heard a different part of this sermon that you thought was important because the Holy Spirit is translating it to your own thoughts and hearts and minds of what's happening in your life. He is here witnessing to us. And look at all these people, godly people. We are in a room filled with people whose lives have been transformed by the love of Jesus. They're all around us. And the works of Jesus, this church is the work of Jesus. And there are millions of churches like this around the world and throughout history. And God has been doing work in Whatcom County, Jesus has been doing work in Whatcom County for decades, even before we got here. And we are enjoying the, the work of, of Christ in our community. And at the center of all of it 
is the Bible, the scriptures, the very words of God which are now being spoken to us. And so when you come into this room, the testimony of Jesus, it it surrounds you, it envelops you. And which shows us that coming to believe in Jesus isn't this cold, objective, rational process that we do. Believing in Jesus is something that God does in us in all of these ways. In fact, coming to believe um, in Jesus is being surrounded by a host of trustworthy witnesses through whom we come to believe that Jesus really is who he said he was. And through these witnesses, we can come to trust him and know his love in our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've spoken to us. The invisible God, the mysterious one whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, that you have come down that we might know you. We pray for your spirit to be producing faith in us. Those of us who already have faith, you would strengthen it. Those of us who are doubting, you would lead us to your mercy. Those among us here who don't yet believe, would you grant us the gift of faith? And so uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, who is our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen.